Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world. Today, Surrey with the fringe on top. Elizabeth Avery and Louise Klamka are reporting back from the International Antitrust Forum in the beautiful county of Surrey with the latest thinking on the courts and the regulators and the way they're approaching novel theories of harm. So we're pretty clear on how we measure concentration measures, how you assess whether there's a vertical foreclosure risk, but how do you assess the impact on privacy data, customer choice that is not based on price or feature specifically, and some concern that there was not a lot of transparency in the data and the information that was being relied on by some of the regulators. And sometimes there's a sense that the theory of harm is not really one of harm, but really a theory that big is bad so that there's no real harm that the agencies are pointing to other than, I guess, a a worldview that consolidation, even if it's not consolidation in a market, but just conglomerates are bad for society. And I know that Surrey with the fringe on top is also a tune from the Rogers and Hammerstein musical Oklahoma, which was memorably sung by Hugh Jackman, among many others. It's actually a tune from possibly the best romantic comedy of all, When Harry Met Sally sung by Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan on a karaoke machine in the sharper image here. Chicks and ducks and geese better scurry When I take you out in my surrey When I take you out in my surrey With the fringe on top now you Watch that fringe and see how it flutters Not the most memorable scene in that movie, but still a good one. What's been happening around the grounds? Well, the Women's World Cup is sadly over, but the Matildas keep making the news. Podcast guest and Minister for Communications, Michelle Rowland, has just announced changes to the anti-siphoning list that she says will make it more likely that we'll be able to watch key Matildas matches on free-to-air TV in the future. It's really important that all Australians, irrespective of where they live or what they earn, have the ability to access for free these iconic sporting events. And we know that... Previously, up until now, it's only been the men's competition for the FIFA World Cup that's been on the list. We've decided to add women's because we have seen the success of the Matildas, how Australians got behind their team, and that fantastic performance that united the nation needs to be recognised in this list. So if a sporting event is on the anti-siphoning list, then free-to-air broadcasters have the first opportunity to buy the rights to that event. Pay TV providers can only step in once a free broadcaster is involved or if nobody has bought the right six months before the event. And from now on, the Women's World Cup will be treated the same as the Men's World Cup. So the anti-siphoning list will include the final, every Matildas game, plus every World Cup qualifying game played by the Tillies in Australia. What about the Olympic qualifiers, Matt? They're coming up. Those aren't on the new list, but the Matildas matches will be on free to wear. So the Women's World Cup wasn't on the list when the 2023 rights came up, and those rights were bought by Optus Sport, which is a paid streaming service. And then Optus sold the free-to-air rights to 15 of the 64 games to Channel 7. Would this change have had any impact on that? It probably wouldn't, because at the moment, the anti-siphoning list doesn't apply to streaming services at all. It only applies to pay TV broadcasting services, and that doesn't include any service that uses the internet. And that doesn't leave much these days. It's really only Foxtel and actually only Foxtel's satellite service because a lot of what they do now is streaming also. 
That seems like a bit of a loophole. And after all, the Matildas World Cup finals games were already on free-to-air. Yeah, and that's why there's also this broader review of the anti-siphoning framework, which is looking at more fundamental issues like whether traditional pay TV should still be singled out and also what obligations free-to-air TV should have to use the rights they might acquire and even whether the anti-siphoning scheme is the best way to ensure public access to these iconic sporting events. Mm, Well, it's going to have an impact on the rights market, um, and I would argue it's not necessarily good for women's sport, which would want free and pay and streaming providers to be bidding head-to-head against each other to drive the prices up. So you're anti-anti-siphoning, Moya? You're pro-siphoning? Well, I'm not pro-siphoning, but I'm wondering why we need a regulatory change when the Matildas games are getting free-to-air coverage already these days. Does that make me anti-anti-siphoning? Well, two wrongs don't make a right, I suppose. Uh, You're not wrong. Well, except sometimes, obviously. And now the Matildas games will be in the same basket as other major sporting events as the broader review kicks off. What else is new? We also mentioned a few episodes ago that the ACCC had raised an amber light on Transurban's proposed acquisition of Horizon, which operates the East Link toll road down in Melbourne. Don't want to see an amber light on a motorway. That usually means there's a hazard ahead. It can do. And here the ACCC has decided to oppose the deal, saying that it would lessen competition for future toll roads in Victoria and entrench Transurban's position in traffic modelling and forecasting based on the data it gets from all its other toll roads. Well, the ACCC let Transurban acquire Westconnext in Sydney if it provided access to that data on a very exciting website that we linked to last time. Yeah, I'm surprised the website didn't crash after we linked to it last time. Must be very robust in the back end. So that data access wasn't an option here? It seems like it wasn't. Last time, the commission said that that data undertaking was potentially more competitive than if a rival bidder were to acquire WestConnex, because it would give everyone access to the data on the website, not just those two players. This time, though, they've said that Eastlink could be a really important platform to support a new competitor in the future. And it looks like that competitor might be Abertus, which is a Spanish company that's part of the world's largest toll road operator. So first, the Spanish win the World Cup. Then they trigger a global revival of the Me Too movement, and now they might buy our toll roads? Yeah, and they were one of the bidders for Eastlink, so the ACCC would have them squarely in mind for their counterfactual analysis. They may have reasoned that a bird in the hand is worth more than an unknown number of other potential birds in the bush. And the team has a great article on the ACCC's decision, which we'll link to in the show notes. What else is going on? Well, there have been quite a few developments in Microsoft's acquisition of Activision. In August, the UK regulator confirmed that it was opposed to the deal, so Microsoft came up with a new structure that would carve out those cloud gaming aspects that a lot of the regulators have been concerned about around the world. So how's that going to work? How do you carve out a cloud? So the rights to stream the Activision titles will be divested to Ubisoft, which is another quite venerable game publisher based in France. In the old days, it brought out Zombie based on the classic Dawn of the Dead set in a shopping mall, and more recently, the Assassin's Creed and Far Cry franchises. How have I lived without it? Well, I see that Ubisoft has its own cloud streaming platform, which is available worldwide, including in Australia, of course. It does, and it'll have exclusive rights to stream and sub-license the Activision games, except in Europe, uh, where Microsoft has already promised the European Commission that it'll directly supply cloud rights to anyone who wants them. And are the Europeans happy with that, or is there some way they think the global deal might be better? They've said they're considering whether they need to take a look at the new structure, and they might think their deal is better for consumers, since it involves a free license to both cloud gamers and cloud companies, though it does rely more on behavioural commitments than the global deal does. And the UK regulators will need to look at the new structure too? Yeah, they've opened a new merger inquiry with a phase one decision due by the middle of October. They've already said, though, that the new structure is likely to address their main concerns, And so while they're still consulting, it looks like they'll get over the line there. 
And in the meantime, we're hearing a lot about the FTC's court case against the deal. We are. The FTC is still appealing the district court decision to deny its preliminary injunction. And it's been given a hearing date in December and is gearing up to reopen its administrative trial if it wins that appeal. Meanwhile, the case is also making headlines after a bunch of confidential documents were accidentally published on the district court's website. Oops. Oops. Those included plans for future Xboxes and also at one time a desire for them to buy Nintendo. It really is the merger that has everything. Of course, the biggest question in the world of gaming is who's going to be on the cover of what no longer is to be called FIFA 24. Yeah, it's EA Sports FC 24, of course. And the main cover star this year is Erling Haaland from Manchester City and Norway. Sam Kerr is next to him on the extended cover, and she features in a lot of the advertising. But the cover itself, you know, this year, it's pretty much Man City. Well, we can still look forward to downloading or cloud streaming that one. And while we're waiting, what else is happening? So over in the US, the Federal Trade Commission is taking Amazon to court again. Last time, it was for what Amazon called the Iliad flow, which the FTC alleged was designed to make it harder to unsubscribe from Amazon Prime. So what is it this time, Matt? The war and peace grind? The Ulysses stagger? This time there is a project Nessie, which we know is a kind of pricing algorithm, but it's almost completely redacted from the FTC complaint. Just like, I guess, the famous cryptid is from the Scottish Loch. Hmm, right, a cryptid being, of course, a disputed creature that cryptozoologists believe exists somewhere in the wild. Like the bunyip or the yowie here in Australia, I guess. Yeah, or the Mongolian deathworm or Olgoi Kokoi, which is meant to roam the Gobi Desert. (laughs) The FTC says that Project Nessie is part of Amazon's scheme to maintain its monopoly in the online superstore market and the online marketplace market. Wait, so there's a market for markets now? Of course there is. And that's really the heart of the complaint. You know, if you go to Amazon and search for a movie or some football boots, it'll show you a lot of options. And some of them will be sold by Amazon itself under the usual wholesale retail arrangement. But a lot of it will come from other sellers who are involved in Amazon's marketplace. And those sellers will pay Amazon to list their football boots on its website and maybe also to store the boots in the Amazon warehouse and deliver them to Amazon customers. Yeah, and the FTC is alleging that Amazon uses those relationships with sellers to protect itself from competition. So it'll punish sellers who offer lower prices anywhere else, which makes it harder for other online superstores to compete and to grow. And if a seller wants to be part of Amazon's Prime program, which many of them do, it'll have to use Amazon's fulfillment service, and that can limit the growth of other fulfillment options and also other online marketplaces. And I guess in the case of Project Nessie, it will... That's right, and especially, perhaps most controversially of all. So are there really markets for online superstores and online marketplaces? And is Amazon really a monopolist in those markets? Yeah, those are the questions. Traditionally, it's been thought that bricks and mortar retailers compete with online stores, at least to some extent. And there are a few other big players in both markets, like Walmart and eBay. So Amazon's share is generally in the range of 70 to 80%. So that's not a literal monopoly, but in Australia, we'd say probably it's substantial market power. Is that enough in the US? The FTC is arguing that it is, and it's citing things like high barriers to entry and the ability to raise prices and degrade quality without losing market share. So we'll see how it goes. And we know that the FTC chair, Lena Khan, wrote a famous paper alleging anti-competitive strategies. Amazon's antitrust paradox, it was called. Is that reflected in this complaint? I guess the paper was more about how Amazon had built up its dominant position through below-cost pricing, acquisitions, and vertical integration. And the marketplace and the fulfillment program were both part of all that. But this lawsuit and the Iliad Flow one are really more about how Amazon's entrenching its dominance, which is kind of a different phase, I think. They've been busy. 
But first, Matt, you sat down with Louise Klamka and Elizabeth Avery after they came back from the International Antitrust Forum in Surrey, with or without a fringe on top. It sounded like a great forum with a different format to a lot of the other conferences. And it's interesting to hear what the leading practitioners are saying about courts and regulators around the world. Of course, we don't know which practitioners said what. The Cider House rules strike again. Let's take a listen. Elizabeth and Louise, you've just come back from the International Forum on Antitrust Regulation in the UK. What sort of conference was that? It was a really great conference, actually. It was a different format to most of the conferences we attend. It featured people from 21 different jurisdictions from all over the world, and it was focused on practitioners only. So there were no regulators present and no clients present which actually changes the dynamic in terms of how people discuss issues and the sort of practical advice and learnings that they share about how to deal with what are sometimes theoretical problems. And it's a forum in which everybody's encouraged to discuss the issues. There are leaders of the discussion, but really everybody is called on to put their views forward and you have a healthy debate and share experiences, which was really, really valuable in hearing everybody's firsthand experiences. And it's Chatham House Rules, so we're allowed to talk about the issues that were discussed, but they, of course, can't be attributed to anybody. That does make for a freer debate, and we're able to discuss vexing issues without risk of retribution or attribution. So without attribution, what what were the main themes and issues that were discussed this year? What was everybody talking about? We had a few sessions that covered some of the big issues going on at the moment. One was dealing with novel theories of harm and whether they have longevity in terms of the way we practice and the way regulators are making decisions. And and that drew out a lot of debate. Flowing from that, we had a session talking about implications for merger practice and, and practical implications on how you do a deal and how you get a deal through and advise clients in the light of those kind of factors. We also had a session on investigations and another on the tensions between agency-based decision-making and court-based decision-making, which is particularly, I think, interesting given the debates we're having in Australia at the moment about moving from a court-enforceable model to a bit more of a direct decision-making model in the merger space. Big tech, as always, was the subject of one of the panels as well. And then we finished up with a session on the expanding reach of antitrust and how that fits in with ESG, environmental considerations and public benefits more broadly. Maybe we could start with those theories of harm we're talking about. What sort of things are practitioners encountering these days and what makes these theories so novel? I guess there's been somewhat of an evolution or a revolution in antitrust thinking that is being felt around the world at the moment. And whether you call it hipster antitrust or neo-Brandeisian or progressive antitrust, it's broadened out, largely inspired by some of the issues that you face in digital platforms, but broadened out the scope of thinking about what constitutes harm from competition? Is it broader than just the Chicago school consumer welfare paradigm? And does it encompass a much broader range of harm? So I suppose they're much more novel in that they involve a a broader group of stakeholders and they involve a lot more than just an impact on price. So the types of issues that are under consideration and agencies around the world are examining is the impact 
of a consolidation, for example, on privacy, an ecosystem theory of harm, so a merger where there may not be any horizontal or strictly speaking vertical integration effects, but there's an alleged ecosystem theory of harm which enables a market participant to gain more market power in an ecosystem and lock consumers into a bundle of products, data access and aggregation, reputation, theories of harm, loss of potential competition, nascent competition and competition in labor markets. To some extent, these are theories of harm that have been around for a long while and uh, are revived. Everything old is new again is kind of one of the themes really, but they're being looked at in new ways in the context of new technologies. Liz, were there any novel theories of harm that jumped out at you? The themes are very much the ones that we've sort of been covering in many of the previous podcasts and centred around digital platforms in particular. What was interesting was there was a little bit of debate about the extent to which these theories of harms are actually filtering into the decisions that are made outside digital platform context. And there was a feeling that most of the cases are not being made on those bases. I think there's probably not the case in things like, you know, meta giphy and those kind of contexts where it's very much about nascent competition and the lack of any kind of horizontal overlap whatsoever. But that was something that came up quite a bit. The other thing that people were talking about in this context was how you actually measure some of these factors. So we're pretty clear on how we measure concentration measures, how you assess whether there's a vertical foreclosure risk, but how do you assess the impact on privacy data, customer choice that is not based on price or feature specifically, and some concern that there was not a lot of transparency in the data and the information that was being relied on by some of the regulators. And sometimes there's a sense that the theory of harm is not really one of harm, but really a theory that big is bad so that there's no real harm that the agencies are pointing to other than, I guess, a a worldview that consolidation, even if it's not consolidation in a market, but just conglomerates are bad for society. It's not clear that there's a theory of competitive harm that goes alongside that. A couple of times, people were talking about the CMA and the EC's attitude to third-party evidence and the lack of visibility over that for the merger parties and the preferencing of some of that third-party evidence over the merger parties. And I think there was a sense that while the regulators had not previously given a lot of weight to competitors' complaints about a transaction, they were increasingly doing so. That they, In the past, they would listen to customers and maybe suppliers, but not competitors, and that that had shifted. Here, I don't think we have seen a lack of robustness in interrogating third-party evidence in ACCC processes. My feeling is that the ACCC is selective in the right way about how it treats that kind of evidence from a competitor. Like it's only giving it weight when it is in a market where there maybe there are foreclosure concerns or there is a dominance issue already and drilling into and testing that information rather than taking it at face value. So that was something that I saw as a bit of a distinction that had come up quite a bit in that merger discussion. Yeah, I agree. The other issue is the role that the concern about aggregation of data 
was having in mergers. And so there's the, the example of the Google Ad Exchange double-click case. There's a, an ongoing investigation there involving the aggregation of data, but it was flagged that there will be a potential divestiture order there, which is interesting in the context where we're advocating also for a divestiture remedy under Section 46. And in the U.S., one of the mergers that has been reviewed and was rejected by the court, the DOJ opposed um, United Healthcare's acquisition of a software business. There were some horizontal and vertical aspects to the transaction. I think the horizontal aspects were not the real issue in the case when it went to court. It was the vertical the DOJ was concerned about United Healthcare having greater access to data of claims by other healthcare insurers, but the court rejected that, saying there's just no economic incentive to misuse the data. It would undermine the entire business model if they were to do that, and there are firewalls in place. So we reject on the facts your theory of harm. And of course, one of the proposals for an amendment to Section 50 is to include data aggregation as a merger factor. So that's probably feeding into some of these theories of harm, although query whether you need a specific merger factor to take those into consideration. I agree, Louise. I think they already have the ability to consider aggregation of data in considering whether there's any SLC. But you can't just consider if there's aggregation of data. They have to consider, well, is there harm that could come from this aggregation of data? Does aggregating data mean that the parties would have an incentive to misuse the data or does it put others at a disadvantage, which mean they're not able to compete in the market or create any sort of vertical foreclosure or discrimination? Yeah, data is meaningless unless it actually has the effect of substantially lessening competition as a result of access to that data. So overall, what's the view on the way that the regulators are applying these theories, making these decisions, and how are those decisions being treated by the courts to the extent that they are? Now, that's a really good point to the extent that they are, Matt, and I think that was a, a real point of concern and discussion is that there is a difference in approach, generally speaking, in a judicial process where you have evidence being tested and you have discovery and rights of cross-examination compared with agency review and, and appeals that have limited merits appeals and potentially an, an administrative law review appeal. But there, there's a concern in the, in the UK, for example, that there's not a lot of accountability of the CMA the Competition and Markets Authority, because basically the appeal is is internal within the organisational structure to a competition appeals tribunal. It's a limited merits review, even if they do overturn, in quote marks, the CMA's decision, it is just sent back to the CMA for further consideration. It's basically sent back on a procedural ground. So there's a perception by UK practitioners that it's extremely hard to overturn a decision of the CMA, very, very limited grounds exist. And then to get from the Competition Appeals Tribunal to a court is very difficult again, and there's a very deferential standard of administrative law review so that they basically don't see that as a realistic way to challenge or make the CMA accountable for its decisions. So where the CMA has a theory of harm, it's very difficult for parties to do anything about that. 
How does that compare with the situation in the US with the agencies and their relationship with the courts? In the US, you have the DOJ and the FTC. They are agencies that both have the ability to review transactions and there is uh, some collaboration between them as to who gets which industry and you you file for review and and they decide between them who's going to take it. If it goes to the FTC, there is an administrative review process and they can review it internally in the FTC or if they want to, they can go to court to block it. If they do want to block it, they have to go to court. So that is a big difference compared with the UK and that does really challenge the agency and means that there is a check on if they have a theory of harm, it has to be backed up by the facts, right? Because when they go to court, there's a, a standard of proof and a testing of the evidence. And the US has a strong separation of powers doctrine, so that's important to them. That doesn't exist in the UK. We've seen a few examples of cases now in the US where the agencies have opposed them. And when they've gone to court to injunct them, the court has refused the injunction. And the Microsoft Activision Blizzard case is an example of that. The Meta Within is another case example of that. And there's a a growing body of evidence that many of the theories of harm that we've been talking about, whether or not they're rejected by the courts is not clear, but at least on the facts, the courts are rejecting the agency's theory of harm. It'd be interesting to see how all of this plays out in Australia with merger reform, since some of those theories of harm are being sought to be incorporated into Section 50 by changing the onus to an extent and also having that presumption that where there is a party who has a level of dominance yet to be specified, that if the acquisition is by them, there is going to be a presumption that it will result in substantial lessening of competition. At least that's what's proposed. I agree, Louise, and listening to the UK practitioners over the course of the conference made me extremely concerned that such dramatic changes to the process and the substance of our merger reform was going to tip the scales a long way and another way and potentially make it very difficult to challenge or hold the ACCC to account. And the ACCC is a, an excellent agency that does a very good job and takes their role very seriously, but all agencies need to be held accountable and it's important that there is the discipline of that check. It does seem like the CMA has moved a long way from being held accountable. Yeah. So I suppose it remains to be seen exactly what a tribunal review would look like under a new regime and how much of that federal court role is preserved. The the ACCC submission to Treasury suggests that it would be but advocates for a limited merits review at the, at the tribunal level as well. Yeah, no, that's it is interesting because the role that they're seeking to preserve for the federal court would be a declarations role, which of course means that the merging parties have to apply for the declaration, yeah. which means that they then bear the burden of proof, which you know is more difficult because you have to prove a negative. Well, it's no secret that they are wanting to tip that scale a little bit. It says it in their own submission. Yeah. They, they think it's yeah. tipped too far towards a presumption against yeah. opposing if it's uncertain, and they would like it to be a presumption towards opposing if it's uncertain in terms of the effect. Yeah. So, I mean, it does suggest to me that the ACCC is definitely moving towards the worldview that is not necessarily a theory of harm if there's a presumption that it's 
um, and you're competitive unless the parties prove otherwise. It's just a theory that big is bad. So what would you say are the lessons for Australia from what's happened in the overseas jurisdictions? I think you need a robust review mechanism for decision making by the regulator to ensure that those decisions are made with facts at the forefront and that there is that regard to all of the evidence. I mean, I think when the ACCC uh, looks to overseas models frequently and, you know, as they should, comparative um, analysis is always a powerful tool, but the ACCC has always had a focus on facts and that is because it knows that a court will test it and I think it would be a real shame if there was no longer that accountability because there was no real merits review by a court that would really test the facts. So how are merger parties uh, and their advisors reacting to what might be new and novel approaches that the regulators are taking and what can we learn from those? I think advisors around the world are finding it to be quite challenging because it's very uncertain as to how a regulator is going to review a transaction. In practice, I think the emerging parties are, th- are considering, is there a fix it first remedy? So can we remedy any potential harm first before we go into the agencies and seek approval for our transaction so that there is no issue to review? Parties have realised that the hella high water clauses, that is requirements to divest everything or do everything necessary to get the deal done, are no longer effective because sometimes agencies are refusing to accept any remedies. So instead, break fees are becoming de rigueur and quite significant break fees. Commitments to litigate are another important aspect of the arsenal and longer time periods for completion so that the long stop date allows the parties sufficient time to litigate and negotiate with the agencies because it's, everything is just taking longer. I did want to ask about international cooperation and convergence. We, we know that the agencies talk to each other, exchange information while they're assessing these things, but sometimes it doesn't seem like they're on the same page at all in terms of the timing and the decisions that they make. Is there more that they could be doing to make things more straightforward for these big mergers? There were some concerns expressed by practitioners in the UK and Europe about potential inconsistencies between the European approach and the CMA's approach and what seems to be a lack of working together, particularly in the early stages of matters, which creates a level of uncertainty and potentially drags out review timelines as well. And they are seeing decisions where the EC might accept remedies and be comfortable with the decision and the CMA rejects it outright. And I suppose the Cargo Tech Cone Cranes decision is an example of that. And the Activision Blizzard case is also an example of that. The degree of cooperation differs between different jurisdictions. I think what we were hearing was that there's a distinct lack of cooperation between the CMA and the EC at the moment. And that might be a sort of a product of learning how to engage with each other post-Brexit, somewhat of a tussle for turf. The ACCC, I think, is trying to tread a fine line between cooperating with the CMA and the EC, which isn't an easy course to navigate. Well, it sounds like a terrific forum. Thanks so much for coming and telling us about it. A pleasure. You're welcome. 
what a great interview. It is interesting how the regulators and enforcement agencies are coming up with new theories of harm to deal with new or newish market dynamics and how they'll go against the courts who tend to be more resistant to change, don't they? Yeah, and especially interesting for us here in Australia, where we're thinking about giving more power to the enforcement agency and reducing the role of the court somewhat, Mm. compared to the US, where the agencies are trying to work around the courts and the Congress, which both seem pretty hostile at the moment. Yeah, I'm seeing Chair Khan sitting in a diner somewhere saying, I'll have what she's having. But Matt, is there time for a quick peek at your crystal ball? Well, we've just had the final hearing in the Economic Dynamism Inquiry, and the Productivity Commission has again kind of resisted some of the key assumptions there, including the idea that Australian markets are becoming more concentrated and that we need new merger laws. Here's what Acting Chair Alex Robson said. At the industry level, our analysis of concentration dynamics shows that most Australian industries are not concentrated and very few became concentrated between 2006 and 2021. So the claim that the Australian economy as a whole is becoming more concentrated doesn't seem to hold up. Most industries in Australia are not highly concentrated and this hasn't changed much. Finally, on merger policy, we conclude that overall there doesn't appear to be a strong case for the implementation of a new formal authorisation regime of the kind proposed by the former chair of the ACCC. Instead, we think that there may be more value in the ACCC further considering its internal merger review processes and for government to consider how to best to avoid perverse incentives across merger clearance procedures. But the acting chair won't be acting as chair for much longer, will he? No, the new chair of the Productivity Commission will be Danielle Wood. She's been at the Grattan Institute and was also the chief economist at the ACCC. She was going to be on the new competition policy task force, which will be looking at the ACCC's merger proposals, but she might not have time for that now. Well, either way, I guess the question is whether the Productivity Commission is still going to run counterpoint to the ACCC and the Assistant Minister for competition. Yeah, I mean, institutionally, it's just released this big report, which it might not want to walk away from anytime soon. A couple of years ago, actually, Danielle Wood spoke to the Economics Explored podcast about a Grattan report that had a fair bit in common with the Productivity Commission's recent findings. In terms of concentration over time, it, there was no clear pattern. Um, so some industries like banks have become more concentrated over the past 15, 20 years. Um, in others, like supermarkets, concentration's actually fallen. Uh, and nor could they really find evidence that profitability had substantially increased over the last two decades. On the other hand, she recently told MLEX that the ACCC's merger proposals were sensible also that Australia was an outlier in not having a formal notification system, and that the courts had had trouble with the forward-looking nature of the merger test. So the view might be concentration isn't necessarily a problem, but maybe we could still use a new merger process. Yeah, that could well be the position. Well, we'll keep you posted. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes and email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests still to come, including the legendary NYU professor Eleanor Fox on convergence and divergence around the world, and the Federal Trade Commission's ongoing beef with Amazon. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review, and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. Chicks and ducks and geese, better scurry. <laughs>